The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, brought to you by Narcanon Suncoast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. This is episode number 101. We have just passed our 100th episode, and I'm super excited because I know that people are listening, and I know that you all are getting some kind of help from the podcast. So that's exciting. My name is Joni Siegel. My co-host, Jason Good, is not going to be with us today. As I said in previous episodes, he gets jammed because he works at a rehab knocking on Suncoast and he is helping people get off drugs and lead clean and sober lives. So we can't really fault him for not being on the podcast. I will miss him. But I'm super excited because we have an interview today. And our interview today is with a fellow named Randy Grimes. Randy Grimes is a former professional football player whose career spanned 10 years with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Go Bucks! He spent 20 plus years battling an addiction to painkillers that he had developed while trying to treat career-related injuries. He now uses his aspiring story of recovery to help victims of drug and alcohol abuse through his work as an interventionist and as business development strategy at Transformations Treatment Center. In 2012, out of a desire to help other struggling athletes that he played with and against, Randy launched Athletes in Recovery, a program which is designed to help athletes of all levels find treatment for addiction while offering continued support for those already into recovery. So without further ado, let's talk to Randy Grimes. Well, hello, Randy, and thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. What an honor. Oh, well, that's very kind of you. I basically told everybody a little bit of your background, but what I usually do when I start these is to find out from you, how did you get started on drugs? (laughs) Oh, well, how long do we have? (laughs) As long as you need. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the, it's, I always say that, you know, I come from a background. I was born in a town right outside of Dallas, Texas called Tyler. And, uh, you know, I had the greatest parents in the world, greatest brother and sister in the world. I never saw any of them ever touch a drop of alcohol or any drugs at all growing up. You know, I was, it was a small East Texas town of football, Friday night lights, pickup trucks, girls and football, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what my life was. And I had the greatest childhood ever. And certainly certainly no indication of what lied ahead. I was, I was a good enough high school player to, to be able to go anywhere in the Southwest Conference and play football on a scholarship. And I could have gone to Texas, Texas Tech, Texas A&M, Arkansas, Rice, Houston, SMU, TCU. And I chose Baylor because I wanted to play for the great Grant Taft. And, uh, you know, I... Uh, I met my wife first day of school, our freshman year. I married her after my junior year and still no indication at all of what lied ahead for me. And I had such a good college career that I was a second round pick of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in 1983. And, uh, you know, we were so excited to be starting our new life, our marriage, our family and my career in Tampa, Florida. And, you know, being a kid from East Texas, I'd never even seen the ocean before. So 
it was doubly excited for me. Okay, well, I have to, to inter- I have to interject here, Randy. I'm sorry that my family, we are diehard Bucks fans, have been since 1995. So there you go, go Bucks. <laughs> Good. You got that in there, huh? I had to. <laughs> and I'm glad to know that too, because there's not many of those left. You are correct. <laughs> But you know what? One thing I was always good at is listening. And when I got in that locker room at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, I listened. I listened to the older guys. I wanted to know how those guys were able to play a game that I loved so much for such a long time at such a high level, feed their families, and call it a job. It still blew my mind that you could play football and get paid for it. Hmm. And I listened to those guys. I listened to the Leroy Selmans and the Jimmy Giles and the Doug Williamses and the and the uh, Hugh Greens and the guys that had been around a while and successful. And I listened. And one of the things, one of the first things I learned by listening in those locker rooms were was that football was no longer a game. It was a job. And the second thing I learned was you do whatever you have to do to stay out on the field, because if you're not out in your position, somebody else was going to be. And what that looked like for me was taking handfuls of pain pills to stay out on that field, because, you know, I was not going to be that guy who was always on the injury report. I was not going to be that guy who was always on the doctor's list to be seen every day. That guy who was always back in the training room getting worked on by the trainers or the guy that was missing practice. That was not going to be be me because, you know, that's a reputation you never get away from. And it follows you for, well, probably if you have that reputation for your very short career. So I justified it. As a matter of fact, I didn't even – I didn't even think twice about it because I looked at it like a necessary evil, you know, throwing down handfuls of pain pills every day to stay out on the field was a necessary evil of the sport because I mean, look, I was getting it from team doctor, so it must be okay. Right. Right. Randy, I was getting, I was getting, what were you taking? I was, uh, lots of Vicodin back then in Percocet. Okay. And, uh, you know, I was getting it from team trainers, so it must be okay. Uh, I had a I had an open drug safe that um, was available to me. So even if they didn't hand it to me, all I had to do was go get it myself. Well, or I was getting it from teammates, or I had fans right outside the locker room who would do anything or or get anything that I asked. So that's how I justified it. Right, but Randy, did you have um, this? May be a dumb question, but did you have like specific injuries that you were addressing, or just general? aches and pains and bruises from the game itself? General aches and pains and bruises from the game itself. And yeah, there's always injuries. You know, there's always injuries in the NFL, especially playing on the offensive line. I mean, you're battling every day. And, you know, the game has changed so much now. Back then, we used to practice really hard. You know, we really used to beat the hell out of each other every day. You know, they don't do that anymore. And uh, matter of fact, they very seldom even put on pads anymore. But back then, back in the 80s and early 90s, and even most of the 90s, you know, we, we just literally beat the hell out of each other 
all week long and just barely had enough to play the game on Sunday. It always blew my mind that philosophy that coaches had that, you know, you practice hard, that's how you're going to play and all that. Instead of, hey, you know, let's, you guys are professionals. You're here for a reason because you're talented and you know what you're doing. And uh, let's save a little in the tank for Sunday game time. And, uh, you know, playing in the heat in Florida and, and uh, you know, Johnny, it was also a, a matter of there was always coaches ch- coaching changes. You know, in the 10 years that I was there, I had five head coaches. Wow. And six different offensive line coaches. So it was always every year was about proving yourself again to a new staff, to a new front office, to a new set of teammates, because it was just such a revolving door for that whole decade that I was there. And, um, you know, that, that looked like going out there and beating the hell out of each other every day. Right. So did you do do any painkillers when you were in college or did this just start when you never No. Okay. Okay. And that, and that's because once you got into professional football, it was a game changer, if you will. Like it was a kind of a different thing. It it was, but you know, I didn't even look at it like an addiction. I looked at it, like I said, like a necessary evil. I was, I was willing to do what I had to do to feed my family and to be the best center that ever played the game. I wanted to be the best center that ever played the game. And I wanted to play for a long time. Right. And uh, so that was, uh, that was how I justified it. And you know what? It's, it's, in the in the entire decade that I was there, not one time did anybody come up and say, Randy, why are you nodding off in meetings? Randy, why are you late to work every day? You know, and Randy, why are you the last one out of the building every night and pills are missing out of the drug safe? You know, Randy, why are you asking your teammates all the time for their pills? You know, nobody ever ever said because I was always playing good. Right. That's all I had to do was play good. And, you know, uh, I, I talk about the opiates and how bad they were, but, you know, I was also taking a lot of benzodiazepines then, a lot of halcyon and uh, for sleep and, and to uh, relieve anxiety, but mostly for sleep. But it got to the point where even – I was abusing that so bad, Joni, that I don't even, you know, I played the last couple of years of my career in a blackout. Wow. You know, I was taking so many of them in the mornings, before games, before practice. And, you know, I would be home late at night laying on the couch after a one o'clock football game that I just played in the NFL on national TV in front of 80,000 people. And I would start coming around and I'd be all beat up and scratched and bruised and cut up and dehydrated and all the things that you are after an NFL football game and not remember a single down. I'd have to wait and watch it the next morning on film with everybody else to see how I played. And, you know, like I said, I always played good and that just kept the insanity going another week. Wow. How did it affect, did, I'm assuming it did, how did it affect your family at the time? Well, and my wife always, I mean, she knew that we were working out hard. She knew that we were out in the heat. She knew that we were beating the crap out of each other every day. So for me to come home and crash on the couch was really not alarming. Understandable. It was was pretty pretty normal. Right. 
and uh, to stay like that until the next morning and get up and just repeat, you know, was pretty normal life. So, I mean, I, I understand that she didn't see that, that that coming on. And, you know, I even had a, uh, right before the end of my career, I had a seizure down in uh, um, Sarasota. I was out on the beach in front of the Don Cesar, and I had a seizure, but I'd also just had some shoulder surgery. And we never put the two together back then that that was a result of benzo withdrawal. We just wrote it off as, hey, you know, something to do with the surgery. We went through this whole battery of tests for like a seizure disorder or, or something else going on. And we never put the two together. And that was really, looking back now, that was the first sign. Wow. Wow. So it at what? So I forgot what your original question was. Was how did it start? No, <laughs> that, well, th- that was my original started. question, and then I was asking you about <laughs> your family. So, at, at what point did it become clear to you that you had an addiction problem and that you needed to address it? Well, what I never expected to do was take what I was calling a necessary evil, which was really a full-blown addiction, into my retired life. And, you know, I, I talk about this part because it was so much more than just the injuries and aches and pains that I took into retirement. You know, I can still remember standing at my locker after our last game in 1992. We had just finished the season. We were We were at Buck Place. We were cleaning out our lockers, going, you know, we were going to have our exit meeting with our coaches, watch the game film from the day before, clean your lockers out. And, you know, pretty much everybody would leave town until the next training camp. That's how they kind of did it back then. Right. And I remember standing at my locker and um, the, the, the door going out of the locker room was right next to my locker. And I felt Sam Wash walk by and put his hand on my shoulder and say, Randy, your services won't be needed anymore. And he just kept right on walking right out the door. And I remember thinking, wow, that's how it ends. Wow. You know, all those, all those years of playing football from fourth grade, every year in the fall, padding up and playing for the next four or five months. And, and it's over just like that. You know, all the blood, sweat and tears that I've left on football fields all over this country and it's over just like that with a coach that I hardly know that I've only played for for one year that has no loyalties to me. And he puts his hand on my shoulder. And as far as I know, doesn't even slow down enough to look me in the eye and say, Randy, it's over. And that's how it ends. And it's not like I expected to have a, uh, a parade or a street named after me or anything like that. But I just never thought it would end like that. And the reason I talk about that is because it took me a long time to get over that. I didn't, I didn't transition well. And that on top, you know, with those underlying that depression and, and loss of identity and self-esteem and everything that went with that on top of the injuries that were only getting worse, the older I got, the longer I was out. Um, you know, it just, it was, I just, it was throwing gasoline on an already raging fire, which wow. was the addiction. Did you ever get any further communication from anybody about why you were now no longer on the team? Anything? 
Well, I well I had hurt my ankle that year, and I missed most of that year. And I had, uh, um, you know, I was thirty three, which is old by NFL standards, especially back then. And uh, I knew it was over. I mean, okay. I knew that I was, it was pretty unlikely. And and you know, they didn't have the free agency rules that they have now. And and it was, uh, you know, I just I really didn't have anything to offer anybody else, only to the team that was most loyal to me that I was most loyal to. And, uh, you know, I pretty much knew that, that, that it was over. I couldn't go out and try. I couldn't go try out for anybody else because I had such a bad ankle. So, I mean, that was it. And, uh, I just, I, you think you're ready for that, for that moment. You, you try to prepare for it, but until it really happens, you never know how you're going to react. And, you know, since, Leave since doing what I do now and working with so many other former athletes is just, you know, it, it's amazing how how nobody's prepared for it. And, and whether you're an athlete or a pilot or a lawyer or whatever your profession, your whole life, and you don't have that anymore, and you don't have that identity, that that sense of self. It's just, you know, that in itself is a is a. Uh, a, a really hard thing to deal with. I can imagine. Just a reminder that you are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. If you'd like further information on the podcast or if you'd like to reach out to us, you can find us on Facebook. We have a Facebook page by the same name, the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. If you'd like further information on Narconon Suncoast, the number is one 337 Two four. That's one eight seven seven three three nine three three two four. So when did you realize that? I mean, obviously after you've now been cut from the Bucks. When did you realize that you had a drug problem? Well, when I didn't have those team doctors, team trainers, team mates, fans, all those enablers, when I moved back to Houston and my started my retired life and you know when I started doctor shopping all over town and uh, with the multiple doctors multiple pharmacies when I started losing jobs losing houses cars as a result of going through all my money and everything else because of the addiction then it was pretty obvious that there was something wrong right so what are the and that's you know that went over for the next twenty plus years. Wow. And how did that whole period of time affect your your family? Because I know you're still married to your sweetheart. I am, and it was hell. I put everybody through hell, and um, you know it's. Uh, you know, you know what we what we do to our families, and um, you know, I, it, it just uh, it was hard on everybody. Yep. How did you get clean and sober? How did you do that? Well, it was uh, there were several things that happened. It was kind of like uh, the perfect storm, if if you want to say that. Um. You know, I'd had a, se- a series of, of seizures, really bad ones. You know, it was getting to the point where I was having them about every other day. Wow. Um, 
as a result of benzo withdrawal. Um, Tom McHale had, had passed away earlier, and that really affected me. And, you know, Tom was out there doing the exact same thing I was doing, self-medicating his injuries that he got while he played for the Bucks. And one morning he just didn't wake up, and that really, really affected me. And, and um, you know, my, my, my wife, she, she loves me, and she, she, she tried to help me, but she finally realized she was loving me to death, and she couldn't take it anymore. And she had to remove herself from the from the picture for a while my kids were my daughter would didn't want me to come around my first grandson her first child and i wasn't i wasn't safe to be around anybody and um you know they had just just had enough and my wife reached out to the nfl and you know the nfl didn't really have a program in place at the time and it just so happened that the person she talked to at the league knew somebody who knew somebody and um, that's how I got your treatment. Wow. And how long ago was that? How long have you been clean? That was September 22nd, 2009. Okay. So 10 years, almost. Coming up on it. Yeah. Double digits. Finally. That's, that's very well, very well done. I know it's not easy. So very, very well done to you. So thank you. Tell, I, I read that you've you've now taken your experience and turned it around to help other athletes or former athletes. Tell us tell us what you're doing. Well, I, I am. I, I work for a place called Transformations Treatment Center in Delray Beach, Florida, and uh, you know, Joni, when I was I, I, I talk I tell this story about. Uh, when I pulled up to treatment that night, I was so sick and so broken and beat up. I fell out of the car and there was about another 30 feet through the door and I crawled on all fours that 30 feet. Nobody helped me. And I'm so glad they didn't. And I don't remember much about that night, but I remember hearing somebody say, as I crawled through the door was Randy in order to get this, you've got to have the desperation of a drowning man. And, you know, that, that had such a profound effect on me because my most vivid childhood memory is being trapped under the water. I fell off one of those little paddle boat things in Tyler at eight years old, and I, uh, somehow I got tangled up in the bottom of the lake, and I couldn't get back to the surface. And I remember how desperately I, crawled, I clawed at the water, you know, and, and screaming underwater and everything. And... um I knew when I heard that that night that I was in for the fight of my life. But two weeks into the process after that, I remember sitting at a picnic table at the treatment center. I was still detoxing. And um, I was sitting at a picnic table. For whatever reason, I would get up and write every morning. For, for It would make me feel better. And I'm not a big writer, but for some reason, just to get up and write down what I was going through, what was going on that day, you know, how I was feeling just made me feel better. And I remember sitting there that particular morning. It was 845 on a Wednesday, and I was I sobbing uncontrollably. I couldn't stop crying because I kept thinking, first of all, I couldn't get over the obsession to throw pills down every day because I had convinced myself that I needed them. I had these injuries. I had all this stuff going on that I needed to numb up for, and I needed pills. But also, all that guilt and shame and that huge wake of destruction that I left back in Houston was, you know, for the first time in 20-plus years, I had to deal with it clean and sober. You know, life on life's terms, like normal people 
do. And I just, you know, I just couldn't stop crying. And it was like at that very second, you know, that something happened to me. It was like somebody came up behind me and draped a warm quilt around my shoulder. And I, mm. I say quilt because I remember feeling weight and warmth on my shoulders. And I also remember at that very second, the obsession to use was lifted off me. That was, I don't know. I mean, that was my big spiritual moment there. My, 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 my burning bush moment, my spiritual awakening or whatever you want to call it. But something happened to me at that picnic table that morning. And not only did I know that I could do this, but that I had to make it mean something. And that's when I started thinking about how I could help my brothers because I knew I had so many other guys that I'd played with, guys that I'd played against who were out there doing the same thing I was doing, whether it was alcohol or opiates or benzos or whatever, self-medicating themselves because, you know, us guys are raised in with that warrior men- mentality where, you know, big boys don't cry. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you get back in there. If it ain't sticking out of the skin, then you should be playing. And, you know, that kind of mentality. And that's the way our fathers raised us. And that's the way their fathers raised them. And guys were out there suffering in silence, just like I was. Right. And, and I knew that I needed to do something to help them. And that's when I started this program for former NFL players. And not only was it so successful, but I started working with former Major League Baseball players and former hockey players, NBA players, guys that were struggling, guys that were self-medicating, guys that were having transitional issues, guys that just couldn't make that leap from the game to real life. And it's, and, and not just it, it, I'm working with jockeys, I'm working with golfers, I'm working with veterans, you know, the veterans have the same issues that athletes do, you know, they've got chronic pain issues, they've got, they've got uh, transitional issues. I was just going to say the same thing, because you hear all the time about, you know, when um, guys leave the military, you know, they need like a whole reentry program, you know, to readjust. Right. When yep. they don't have that assignment to go to, or yep. they don't have that uniform to put on anymore, they really struggle with who they are. And, and I can relate. Yep. Yep. I can see that. And the chronic pain, the chronic pain issues that they have. Yes. Yeah. That I, I think what you're doing is just hugely important. You know, I, I don't think you're an isolated case. As you know, you're not an isolated case. And... I, I I applaud you for what you're doing. I think I think it's fabulous. If you um your your program that you do, Athletes in Recovery, does that have its own website? Yeah, it's it's well it's one that's being worked on right now, but if anybody wants to find out more about what I'm doing, they can go on the transformations treatment dot uh center transformationstreatment.center okay. and look at the work that, that we're doing and you can also go and go on to uh, randygrimespeaks.com Perfect. and everything is listed on there uh, some of the organizations I work with and um, and and the veterans programs that, that, that I work with 
Perfect. So Randy, we don't know necessarily exactly who listens to the podcast. We we know that we've helped some people who have reached for treatment. So we are assuming that we have a lot of loved ones and people who know addicts and maybe some former addicts. So what message would you like to send out there to our podcast listeners? I want people to know that there's hope, especially families. You know, this is such a family disease and it and and addiction has such long tentacles, you know, it just reaches out and grabs a hold of everybody. No matter where I speak and ask people, especially schools, yeah. uh, when I ask kids who's been affected by addiction in any way, you know somebody, and it doesn't even have to be in your family. It could be somebody on your neighborhood or on your street in your school. Every hand goes up. Yep. I mean, this is. You know, I, Johnny, I used to, I, I, I describe it like this. I used to, you know, I was the captain for many years with the Bucks, and I would go out to midfield before the game and do the coin toss before every game. And I can remember standing out in the middle of Tampa Stadium back when it was the old El, you know, the old sombrero. Right. And, uh, you know, that, that stadium held about 72,000 people. And I can remember standing in the middle of that field during the coin toss and just looking around at the sea of orange and white and just being in awe that I'm sitting here in the middle of all these thousands and thousands of people. And, you know, it, it's relative because that's how many people died last year as a result of opioids, you know, as a, as a result of, of overdose. I mean, this is a, uh, this, we're in the middle of a pandemic. And when I speak at schools, I, I look around at those kids. This is the generation that we're losing right before our eyes with 192 overdoses a day, a day. That's right. And, you know, it's, it's such a family disease that affects everybody. And I want people to know that there's hope and there's resources. There's resources out there for everybody, whether you've got insurance, no insurance, self-pay. It's just doing nothing is nothing, you know, nothing changes if nothing changes. Worst thing you can do. I'm sitting here, right. I'm nodding my head, Randy, I'm going, that's right, that's right, that's right. I mean, the, the whole thing we push on this podcast over and over again is that there is hope available. I mean, there's hope, there's help available no matter what somebody's situation is. But the wrong thing to do is nothing. They have to do something and they have to reach out today and they have to call somebody today or go to a website today, but they have to do something today about this problem because it's not just yours and mine. It is everybody's problem and it is a pandemic. You are absolutely right. I cannot validate you enough for the work that you're doing. You know, it just, it takes... It takes a bunch of people like you, and I appreciate so much everything that you're doing, especially in the arena that you're doing it in. I have two grown sons and a husband, and there's only two subjects ever spoken about in my house. One is movies, because my older son's a filmmaker, but the other one is sports. I hear all about the Lakers. I hear all about the Bucks, And so it's, it's, a, huge, it's a huge area, and I, I know that, you, as I said, you know it. You're not an isolated case. You know, it happens. It happens in that arena. So I, I really appreciate everything you do. And I, I want to thank you for what you do. And thank you for being willing to talk to us today. Well, I thank you for what you're doing. And, 
you know, if it was any other disease, it'd be on the nightly news every night. But because of the stigma that's attached to it, we never hear any. Every now and then we'll hear something from the White House or somebody in legislature should throw some money at it. But, you know, it would be on the news every night if it was any other disease. But that's what we have to do is tear down the stigma. And it's amazing even now how many communities I go in, go into where people still bury their head in the in the sand. And they, they think if they don't recognize the problem that it doesn't really exist. And that's, you know, the worst thing you can say is not my child. That's because right. Because it is your child. That's it's right. It's everybody's child. That's exactly right. Randy, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. Wow. What an awesome interview and what an awesome story. And again, a completely different viewpoint from anything else we have had on the podcast. I mean, here is a profession where you have to continue to play no matter what. It's your job. And so it becomes, you know, almost like a tool of your trade to take these painkillers to get through, to be able to play. Because if you can't play, you're not doing your job. You don't get paid. I mean, ultimately you don't get paid. And I, that's a new, it's kind of a new viewpoint. And I want to put out there that anybody listening, if you have kids who are in professional sports, you need to be aware of this because the fact that it was so easy for him to get any kind of painkiller that he wanted is pretty scary. Now I'm guessing it's not as easy anymore as it was, but if you've got kids playing professional sports, injuries are going to happen. So you need to find alternatives to addictive painkillers. And if your child has to take painkillers, do it at a minimum and find other solutions because I can totally see how he got started and how it was perpetuated to the point where it was. So fascinating story. My last message for you is if you know somebody that has an addiction problem, please, please, please reach out today. Find a website, reach out, do something. Don't do nothing. Randy said it best. Don't do nothing. That is the worst thing that you can do. This is the Addiction Podcast. This was episode 101. We're into our second 100 episodes. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back again next week. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, call 877-339-3324 or visit www.narcononsuncoast.org. Narconon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard. 